So it actually comes from the issue of whether we should hold our hands up when we're singing or not, uh, which is becoming more and more a fad and a fashion amongst uh, youthful evangelicals. And uh, uh, you're confronted with time to time with issues, fads, fashions, new patterns, new ways of doing things. And you've got to think out, well, why, why haven't we done this before? Um, what should we do? How do I avoid being a grumpy old man? How do I avoid being reactionary? So this is new, therefore it must be wrong. Uh, is as stupid as, this is new, therefore it must be right. Uh, that's, that's dumb either way, isn't it? So it's more, what is it that we're doing and why are we doing it and why have we done it, why haven't we done it, and so on. Now, to, to pick on one issue like raising your hands is something of a problem because how can there be anything wrong with raising your hands? How can there be something wrong with lowering your hands, standing on one foot, bending over? I mean, there's any number of things to do with your bodies that can't be wrong. So why, why, you know, why would we make a fuss over something which cannot in itself be wrong? But of course, there's, there's loads of things that aren't in and of themselves wrong that we choose not to do and there are loads of things that we choose not to do which actually uh, are significant. Those of you who have the blessing of uh, Anglicanism, when you go to your prayer book, that is the real prayer book, the one of 1662, in the front of it there is an article by Archbishop Cranmer about what practices are to be retained and what practices should be changed. And the Reformation is a very important period of history for us to study for lots of reasons. Not the least, it was a point in time when um, everything was up for grabs. The Catholic Church is wrong. Uh, we've been completely misled. The gospel has been emptied out of Europe. Here is our chance to take the Bible seriously and create what needs to be. Now... The Anabaptists, of course, did it with more vigour than the Lutherans and uh, uh, the Anglicans and the Reformed churches. But of course, in doing it more vigorously, they went ballistic and became totally stupid, uh, depending on who, which group it was. The Anabaptist movement was not a singular movement. It was a, there are a whole host of movements inside Anabaptists, uh, the Mennonites and so on, that uh, that came amongst the more conservative. But you get some who become pacifists, you get some who actually become very violent, you get some... But they're all working on the same principle, that is, well, whatever the Bible says, that's what we're going to do. And if the Bible's not saying we... So here's an opportunity when people are actually uh, recreating almost from scratch what they want to do. Uh, Luther had real difficulty in understanding what to do with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was so important to him, but to think out the Lord's Supper again from scratch was just one or two steps beyond where he was able to go. And so he retained 
the Lord's Supper, but he had to invent a new thing to be able to obtain the Lord's Supper, namely the uh, uh, ubiquitous body of Jesus. Do you know about the ubiquitous body of Jesus? Uh, do you know what ubiquitous means? Just as a little word, uh, ubiquitous, it goes with propinquity and uxorious. Yes, kind of. Ubiquitous means everywhere. So Jesus' body is everywhere. So being everywhere, it's in the bread. Well, um, that doesn't really solve your problems because if it's everywhere, then it's also on the table. I mean, uh, the ubiquity of the body of Jesus. But he has to come up with this to explain his consubstantiation. Uh, he comes up with the con because he can't, he can't work out what to do with it. Now, likewise, the Anglicans can't work out how far to go on different issues. Each of the systems has its... We went this far, but we don't want to go any further. Um, Luther also, of course, was damaged in, his, uh, in the peasants' revolt and how far he wanted to side with the ruling authority because the peasants wanted him to, to side with them in their radical revolution, which he saw the radical revolution was awful and didn't want to be involved in it, so wrote against them. But by the time he'd written against them, the... Uh, ruling classes had so um, uh, battered them down and destroyed them that made Luther's document, it was ill-timed, his document came out just when the men were having their heads kicked in and saying what you should do is kick heads in and so it really came out fairly badly. But it, it shows the kind of revolutionary nature of society and church and thinking that was taking place which enables us then to uh, be able to go back to square one to work out things. Now, there's Cranmer. Cranmer, of course, is in incredibly difficult circumstances because he's dealing with Henry VIII most of the time and the man's a madman going madder. Uh, but he is the law uh, and so you can't really get too far offside with Henry because look what he does to his wives. Well, he'll do that to his Archbishops too. I've got a funny feeling we're still getting people walking past trying to find their way in. If someone could open that back door it would be very helpful. Um, so, so Cranmer writes this lovely little essay about what you change and what you don't change. And he points out that there are many, uh, a thing which in itself when it was first created was neutral, uh, didn't matter, but over time has grown into be of such significance and importance that you need to throw it away. And there are other things that happen which really are unimportant and you shouldn't throw away because it's only upsetting God's people for no good reason. There are other things which are so evil in and of themselves that they must be dispensed with. And trying to work out what is and what isn't is, is very complicated. There is a hope that some people vainly have that we'll be able to come up with a list of adiaphora, that is, the, the things that don't matter. Such a list is an impossibility. It doesn't exist. Uh, anything can matter, uh, given the opportunity. That is, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says that circumcision is neither here nor there. But in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says that he wouldn't have Titus circumcised because he didn't want to compromise the truth of the gospel. So here is something that in itself doesn't matter, but yet on this particular occasion, the very truth of the gospel was going to be undermined by it being done. So there is no, you know, would you put circumcision in the adiaphora, in the things that don't matter? Well, yes and no. <laughs> Depends on 
when and where it happens. And so I turn to get my cup of tea here and it is on the, uh, the Lord's uh, table. Uh, am I now defiling the Lord's table by drinking tea from the Lord's table? And if I were to raise my cup to you, uh, there is a symbol of what? Is that a rude thing that I have just done? Is it a pleasant thing that I have done? Is it a blasphemous thing that I have done? Well, it could be any one or all of those, depending on the circumstances and the situation and what's been said around about it, couldn't it? So you can't say, well, raising his cup is a bad thing in and of itself. Though you could say, well, it doesn't matter, though it may. So there's no kind of fixed list of the things that matter and the things that don't matter. You've got to work out, well, what's the context in which it happens? And the reasons, the rhymes, what are you trying to communicate? That is, symbolism actually matters. You, you, can't, uh, you can't avoid symbols. Uh, uh, I suppose you could if you're blind, but I'm not sure even then. You can't avoid symbols um, and they will carry meanings whether you want them to or not. Um, the architecture we're in at the moment has got terrible symbolism about it. I, I don't like this particular room because it is too narrow and long and it forces you to sit in rows and it is less uh, sociable uh, than the bigger room down the track which we couldn't get hold of this afternoon and because it is set up in the pattern in which it is set up. That is, if this was my room and I was regularly here, I'd be standing over there with half of you facing this way and half facing that way and some of you around. I mean, this is a, to have a discussion with a group of people, this is exactly the wrong way to set it up. Uh, to have it facing up to, uh, well, you see, it really set up as church, isn't it? It's, it's set up as a chapel in the Catholic tradition. Uh, this, of course, was a Catholic girls' school when it was built, so not surprising that they've set their chapel up to be a Catholic chapel. That's, that's what you would do. And so if you're going to be a Protestant running it, you really need to, to, to set your chairs up in opposition to the building. But that becomes something of an absurdity because the very room has been created uh, with its big bay windows outside. I mean, we don't like those kinds of windows in Australia because they're designed to let sun in and let light in, which is the last thing you want to do in an Australian building unless you've got uh, 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 deep pockets to pay for the air conditioning so but you see their symbols are in it's not just the cross the cross is not just the only symbol that's in this room or the table that is not a table that is covered with a coverlet all the way so that makes it an altar by doing it like that I mean you don't have a table at your house I presume which has its tablecloth all the way over the top and all the way down so that no one can stick their legs under the table that's that's an absurdity isn't it so it's not a tablecloth. So it's not a tablecloth. What is it? Well, it's an altar. It's an altar cloth. That's what it is. And so you've turned this table into an altar. So there's any number of symbols that are right here in front of you, all of which are affecting the way you think, feel, uh, respect, relate to the building you're in. Architecture is full of symbols, um, intentional and unintentional symbols. Even the use of stained glass. Um, which is good in that pattern over there because it is uh, just geometrical designs rather than idolatrous pictures of, of people. But still, what kind of building has stained glass? I think uh, Federation buildings in Australia do. So I think it's more a sign of its age than its religiosity. 
that has stained glass, which is why I think it is not religious stained glass, it's just geometrical patterns. But the, the thing already communicates to you. Right? So symbols you have everywhere, and symbols have great effects. They, they, they change how you feel about things. They affect how you perceive things. But one of the things about Protestants is we didn't have symbols. We actually worked against symbols. We stopped symbols from the Reformation. Now, why? Is it because we're dull? Is it because we're Enlightenment thinkers, not emotional relators? Is it because we've fallen into a Cartesian division between our head and our heart? Well, all those kind of statements are profoundly and deeply stupid. Because, why? Why wasn't the Reformation Enlightenment driven? It was 200 years before the Enlightenment, so of course it wasn't Enlightenment driven. Couldn't be, it's daft. I mean, I've got a book that I'm uh, glancing through at the moment which pointed out to me that John Stott's preaching, expositional preaching, is accused of being an enlightenment. Uh, he, he was unaware of how much he was infected by the enlightenment, that uh, he created expositional preaching. Stupid. Because the way he preaches is exactly the same as John Calvin, who was two or three hundred years before the enlightenment. <laughs> the enlightenment. In fact, the enlightenment comes out of the Reformation. The Reformation doesn't come out of the enlightenment. It's, uh, the enlightenment came uh, in, in consequence of the Reformation's push towards the importance of the mind, even in matters of religion. So it's all back to front when people think like that. It's, it's, it's just a, it's like calling someone a fundamentalist. It's, it's just being rude to them. It's not being actually accurate uh, to call someone that. So what is it that, why is it that Protestants were so boringly unesthetic? Well, we were and we weren't. It was a different aesthetic and it was a different set of symbols. Um, take, for example, the symbol of crossing yourself. Why don't we cross ourselves? See, I grew up in a church in which there were people who, when we said the Apostles' Creed, would turn to the liturgical east, that is, that way. So the choir, which normally sat this way, came to the creed, they'd turn this way. And when you came to reference to Jesus, you'd cross yourself. And if you're really super spiritual, when you came to the incarnation uh, of the Virgin Mary, you'd do a little bob of the, of the knees as well. And so that was the way the creed was said. Now, what's wrong with it? Is there something immoral? Is there something decadent about crossing yourself? Have I just somehow, you know, done a criminal act that, that I should be taken away? It's not criminal. Is it immoral? It's not immoral. So if it's not immoral and it's not criminal, why don't you do it? Aren't you a Christian? Don't you believe in the cross? What's wrong with the cross of the Lord Jesus? Shouldn't you symbolise the cross? Are you, are you ashamed of the cross that you will not cross yourself? Um, uh, I met an African bishop, lovely African bishop, very fine man, who um, in Nigeria where there is massive uh, danger of being Christian, especially the northern uh, Nigeria, because northern Nigeria is controlled by Muslims, southern Nigeria is controlled by Christians, so if you live on the kind of borderline around Joss where um, Bishop, what's his name, lives, um, 
can't think of his name now, very nice man. I mean, his home's been attacked, his wife's been attacked, his, the members of the congregation are killed. I mean, it really is very dangerous if you live on the border between the south and north of... They always wear crosses, that mob. Big, big, chunky things, you know, on their shirt. And when we don't wear crosses, they say, are you ashamed of the cross? I'm not ashamed of the cross, you know. I'm wearing the cross in a Muslim town to let people know that the cross of the Lord Jesus matters to me. Whereas you are ashamed of the cross because you won't wear it. Well, it's like circumcision, isn't it? What uh, in one context you may do, in another context you may not do. But hang on, why don't we wear crosses? Because bishops all over the world wear crosses, except in the Diocese of Sydney. So why not? Pectoral crosses, they're called, because that's your pectoral. Uh, so why is it that we don't wear crosses? And should we wear crosses? Little discreet ones on our collar uh, or something other. In fact, bishops in other parts of the world sign their name, uh, you know, little cross, you know, cross Peter Sidney. Um, whereas here he signs his name Peter Jensen. Um, very boring compared to Cross Peter Sydney. Um, there used to be one Cross Harry Upper, Limba, Upper, Upper Nile. Um, now, why, why do we use? Why don't we do more symbols? See, it's more than just the issue of why do we raise our hands or why don't we raise our hands. That's just another new symbol that is being done. But we are traditionally the non-symbolic or the anti-symbolic people. And because we haven't discussed it for so long, I suspect we don't know why we don't cross ourselves or genuflect or, genuflect or, or wear crosses or any of these things anymore. I think that's the problem. Are we on board? you understand what my problem and question is? Well... Uh, I think the key to explaining it is, or a way of explaining it, is natural religion. So what is natural religion? Question for you. What is natural religion? Not wearing crosses. Uh, yeah, okay, what is natural religion? Or wearing crosses. What is it? What is the alternative to natural religion? Doing something, yeah? What is the opposite of natural religion, or what is natural religion either way? Doing something is natural religion. I mean, what would be the alternative to natural religion? What's the opposite of natural religion? Revealed religion. Revealed religion. That's right. Natural religion is the religion of natural man. And natural man, by definition, is sinful. sinful. <laughs> That's right. So, what will be the character of natural religion? It will always be what we do. <laughs> it's always Arminian, by definition. It's always about how I climb the mountain to opt to get to God. What do I do in order to worship God, praise God, get myself right with God, contact God, get in fellowship with God, whatever God thing you want to do with, it's how I get there. Right? Whereas revealed religion is how God comes to us. Right? And so it's not about us and our activity, it's about God and his activity in our salvation. It, of course, comes to us from different intellectual suits. Natural religion will come to what we think, what we worked out, what seems normal to us, what seems the best approach. It comes out of our thinking. Revealed religion comes out of what God says to us because the Trinity is something no one has ever thought up. 
I mean, it's a bizarre idea, the Trinity. Uh, the substitutionary atonement, the penal substitutionary atonement is a bizarre idea. The incarnation, that's something some people have thought up in varying forms, that is that a God would become man, but not in order to make man God, to take manhood into the Godhead, not in order for, I mean, there's, the, the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is very different to other religions. Nearly all other religions have man's method of self-salvation, whereas the method of the gospel is God's method of salvation. It's a very different thing. Now, natural religion then concentrates very heavily on what we do. That is what matters, especially in religious celebrations, religious services, religious activities. And so you build temples and temples will have a certain kind of commonality of design. They'll be special buildings, they'll be important buildings, they'll be holy places, places where you can go and meet God. One of the characteristics of course Christianity is we have no temple because our temple is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so it's a very, it's a templeless religion. In fact, if you remember the Romans' attack upon the Christians, we were called atheists because we didn't have any idols, no statues. You come into their religious meeting room and there is no statue. And so we were called atheists because we had no gods. Because what kind of religion is there where there isn't an idol? All natural religions have idols. You can think the, the, the ones that don't, like the Muslims, come out of revelation. It's because they are an offshoot of Christianity and Judaism that they are so anti-idolatrous. But natural religions, they always have idols one way or another, and even the Muslims, of course, over time, become idolatrous. Which idols do you see in Islam today? The Quran itself. You're never allowed to put it on the floor. You're never allowed to have it beneath your feet. You're never allowed to hold the 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 beauty with which it is written is more important than the message of which it says. The actual physical Quran itself is is their great idol. But um, Muhammad is too a very interesting man in Tasmania called uh, Sam Green. Any of you ever read any of Sam Green's blogs? Answering Islam. Look up Answering Islam. You all need to know Answering Islam because whatever question you've ever got about Islam, it's in Answering Islam. Uh, Sam is a graduate here of Moore College, uh, did uh, engineering at New South Wales Uni uh, and has taught himself over the last 15 years Islam. He's learned Arabic, he's searched and scoured and Sam uh, thinks out Islam from our point of view and explains it. He keeps on coming up with new discoveries about Islam. Uh, two of the ones he's come up with uh, that he shared with me in recent times. He, he sends me reminders every now and then that he's still alive and that he's his latest thought. And, um, but the, the, the things he's found are, are really fascinating. But he, he's found out uh, new thoughts for me on the uh, not for me, but he's given me new thoughts on. Um, uh, the, on the meaning of jihad and new thoughts on the meaning of shirk. This has got almost nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but they're really good points you need to know about. That is, on, shirk is blasphemy. Uh, jihad, you'll remember, so remind me because I'll get on to shirk and then I'll forget about jihad. Shirk is blasphemy and it is blasphemous to associate anything with Allah. Allah is unit. 
is one, is only. Uh, it's like Plato. Uh, the ultimate reality for Plato is the one, tohen. And so everything is a participation in the one. Everything can be summed up in the one. Well, Allah is the one. And the fundamental thing about Allah is oneness, is unity. Uh, that is the ultimate reality. So they're very polytheistic, many gods. But there's just one. And Allah is one and everything. Now, unity, the unity of Allah is considerably more important for, for them than it is for us. That lies at the very heart of Islamic thinking. And therefore nothing is ever to be associated with Allah. If you say Allah and, it's like saying the gospel plus to us. You are immediately undermining whatever you put after the end you are undermining the unity of God the, 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 the total fool's sufficiency of Allah as soon as you add and but of course the Muslims keep on adding and because they keep on I believe in Allah and Muhammad is his prophet and that's a blasphemy that's a shirk um, Sam Green is very interesting, you know, he, 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 he goes into public debates with Muslims and um, they're sometimes on his website and you can see them and he brings out these kinds of arguments, you know, it's an argument you've never thought of using, isn't it? That's because you don't know enough. What you do is you argue about the Trinity. Sam says, no, don't, don't defend the Trinity, attack Islamic monotheism because their monotheism doesn't work because they're not triune. Because in the end, Allah being one is so remote, he cannot, be he cannot be associated with you. You have no way to Allah, because as soon as you find your way to Allah, you have just defiled Allah. So he, you see, he has got inside their frame of reference and argues from their frame of reference, and he really does bring them up with a great uh, halt in debate. He's very interesting. The one on jihad, I remember, it's all right. The one on jihad is interesting too. Because jihad is the, um, the holiness war, really. Um, and uh, we think of jihad as their uh, war against the West. Um, that uh, the name of God has somehow been blasphemed and therefore they have to go to war and oppress the blasphemers and the like. However, uh, when you argue against the Muslims, they'll always tell you that jihad is a spiritual thing rather than a, uh, a, a warfare thing. It's war, but it's a spiritual warfare within yourself. For the first person that you must fight is your own sinful self. That's the first person. Jihad is the purification of your own soul to be fully Islamic. However, because it doesn't stop there, otherwise they wouldn't be blowing people up and doing all kinds of other things. But where is the second thing that you must do in terms of jihad? What is the, now that I've purified myself so that I am fully Islamic, whom do I next fight? Is it the Jews? Is it the polytheists? Is it the, the Christians? Who, who am I supposed to fight next? Anyone? Sorry, all of the above? No, they have, a, they have a priority system. Defilers of Islam. Defilers of Islam, and who are they? Who are the most defiling of Islam? Moderates. Moderates, that's right, false Muslims. They're the, they're the next people, of the, they're the next, I would have thought Jews or, or, 
I actually think polytheists, they're very anti-idolatry and very anti-polytheists. So you would have thought Hindus or Buddhists or somebody like that would be next cab off the rank because uh, the Jews and the, and the Christians are known as the people of the book and have certain, they've got certain respect for us, only some, but some. But no, 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 no. The next cab off the rank is the false Muslims. And of course, when there's 70 different versions of Islam, there's lots of false Muslims to have fights with. And so the fight between the Sunni and the Shiites will always take precedence over the fight between the, the Muslims and the Christians. And so they will never be at peace in the Middle East. They can't be because they're always fighting each other. Which made sense then of my local Muslim shopkeeper that I go to from time to time, although he's now moved on. But uh, he said to me one time, the trouble is there are too many Muslims and not enough Islam. I didn't understand what he was meaning. I now, thanks to Sam Green, understand what he's meaning. Um, Sam's a very good cross-cultural evangelist and he's, he's get on to answering Islam. It's, uh, he, he does give you answers on all kinds of issues. Um, have you just got onto it already in your computer there? That's a wicked thing to do in discussion. Rude amongst everything else. Uh, <laughs> I just realised there was a dongle hanging out the side of your computer there, yes. That's all right. The others are doing it by their phone. You know, you're just old-fashioned. In the chapel as well. In the chapel as well. <laughs> okay, so... Returning back out of Islam and Sam Green, and how did I ever get to there? Uh, they're revealed religion. That's why they, don't, they, they, like us, don't have the idols and the statues. Now, clearly we don't go for idols because the Bible is against idols. You shall not make any graven image. But the biblical uh, prohibition on idolatry, which is very strong, is, of course, associated with the religion that went along with idolatry, which by and large was Canaanite fertility religions, which were totally immoral and decadent. And therefore, within the scriptures, you'll find a very close association between idolatry and fornication, or idolatry and adultery, because sexual immorality was part of the idol practices of the ancient world. However, the Bible is against the idol itself, not just the immorality that went with idolatry. Though there are statues, there are idols made within the scriptures. So the temple had decorations on it. And you wonder, well, how, how and why does God allow decorations in the temple when he's against us making anything that looked like anything on earth? There's a little puzzle. But there's also, of course, the uh, snake on the, on, on the pole. But the snake on the pole that uh, led to the salvation of people in the Exodus was later destroyed under King Hezekiah because people had come to worship it. And so the worshipping of that was... And the idols weren't just statues of false gods. The, the golden calf was a, a statue of Yahweh because they had a feast to Yahweh with the golden calf. So they were trying to portray Yahweh. That is... Idols can be f true representations of false gods or false representations of the true God. All idols are always false representations of the true God because all idols are always dead, um, movable, dumb, and so on. So, I mean, the God is and powerless and so on, whereas God is powerful, he speaks, he moves, he creates. The, the very kind of fundamental things about our God 
are never caught up in a statue. The statue always misrepresents God, uh, even if you could think of a form that would somehow represent God. Uh, but it's not just the form, it's the very character and nature of an idol, uh, a statue, which is a misrepresentation. So the Bible is very keenly anti-idolatry. Another little side point for you at this point. I don't like, I am worried, I haven't read it carefully enough and so I may be just grumpy old man again, but I don't like the way Tim Keller has turned all sin into idolatry. There's this kind of analysis of, of, uh, of sin using idolatry. It is true in Colossians that we're told covetousness is idolatry because you're worshipping the created things of this world rather than the creator of things. And so the Bible itself does have a metaphoric use of the word uh, idolatry, though I think that's the only one I can remember, I can recall, I'm not sure it does elsewhere, the Bible's against physical idolatry. But the, the bits I've read of Tim, he, he's, he's got rid of sin by replacing it with idolatry and analysing what's important to the human heart and the idols of our brains and the idols of our society and the idols which I would just call their sin. I, I think it's a much easier concept to deal with. But um, I, I may be completely off the mark there. I'd be very happy for you to read more Keller and think about it. But if you, I suspect because he's a North American Presbyterian, he doesn't face idolatry. Uh, I'm an Australian Anglican, so I face idolatry everywhere. You know, in every church building you go to. And he, last time I met him, he was conducting church in two places on either side of uh, Central Park. One was a Seventh-day Adventist church, which had no idols in it, and the other was a university lecture theatre, which had no idols in it. But I live in St Andrew's Cathedral, which is full of idols. So I, you know, I, I, I want to retain religious idolatry as a concept rather than to, you know, that, that's a throwaway. I haven't thought it out long enough, that one. I'm just, you know, happy to get some reactions to it later on that. But uh, the Bible's against idolatry. It's against visual religion. That's part of being against natural religion. Because humans are very visual. We tend to want to visualise God. And that is what the Bible will not allow us to do. The Bible is auditory, because it is revealed religion. It comes to you in word. It's the word of God, which is the powerful agency for the creation of the world. It is the word by which we live. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds through the mouth of God. And it is the word of God that became man, became flesh, and dwelt amongst us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Word has a much greater importance as a church meets here on a Sunday night they're doing testings on sound systems in there which is why we're not there and why they are making rude noises just to satisfy the idly curious so that to keep you back on track um, so it's the it's the word which is part of revealed religion therefore we gather together to hear God's word now Cranmer you see and the reformers come at the end of hundreds of years when the word of God has been put on the back burner. It's in Latin. Most people don't read Latin. Many of the priests didn't read Latin. Um, 
most of the priests of England at the time of the Reformation couldn't read Latin. They could read the, the letters out, but they, they couldn't translate it, which you know, is kind of pointless. And so they were reciting gibberish, effectively. And so the word had been evacuated from the church. Uh, what was left then was religious art, and art was the means of communication, both in terms of the symbolism physically and also what was painted on the walls and the roof and the statues and the stained glass windows wasn't as uh, great then as it is today, but the stained glass windows as well. Technologies improved stained glass since the days of the Reformation. And so it was all done in, in drama and in art. And so that's what the reformers had grown up with and that's what they knew had kept the gospel away from the people. That it looks like you're bringing the gospel to people by giving you uh, plays, but in fact you're taking the gospel away from people because you are presenting God physically, visually, and that doesn't actually work. Now, part of the consequence of it was illiteracy. When I was a boy growing up under the British Empire, uh, in our atlases, everything that was British was painted pink. Um, well, light red, uh, but it was all pink and it was all over the world. Everything was pink and, and growing. But when you overlaid the map of world literacy, the Protestant map and the world literacy map was almost identical. Uh, that was the, that's because once you accept the Reformation, you accept the word matters. Once you accept the word matters, that is important that people know how to read. Once you know that, then you... You teach people to read. But in a visual society where communication is in the hands of the hierarchy who present it to you via drama and pictures, they're quite happy to keep the people illiterate. And in keeping them illiterate, it also kept them uh, controllable at the same time. When you get people reading books for themselves, well, they start thinking for themselves and all kinds of other nasty things happen that you don't want. So it was normal to be illiterate in the non-Protestant world. That was the normality. This is still the case, by the way. Wycliffe Bible translators have done a terrific work all over the world. Most uh, societies moving from illiteracy to literacy have been done through Wycliffe Bible translators. Because nobody else is so passionately concerned about getting everybody to read as the people of the book. It's, it's, it's a certain logic to it. Uh, Tom Sawyer, what's the musical they did? Big River, something like that? There's a song in about you've got to go to school. If you don't go to school, you can't read. If you can't read, you can't read the Bible. If you can't read the Bible, you'll never get to heaven. So you've got to go to school. That was the logic of Tom Sawyer as to why you had to go to school, which was true. Uh, education started, universal education started in the colony of Sydney, Botany Bay as was then, by the Christians and the reason was so that the community would be able to read the Bible. That's explicitly the reason why uh, we started schools in New South Wales. Um, because today you're not allowed to read the Bible in the schools in New South Wales, but that's just where we've gone to. So. With natural religion, you always then are concerned about the visual over the auditory, always concerned over the, uh, uh, the sensual and the experiential over the thoughtful. 
as a character. Yeah. You can't get rid of the sensual and the experiential. That's an impossibility. Yeah. Listening to a long sermon is a sensual experience, a deadening of most of the senses, especially the <laughs> rear end on an uncomfortable chair, but you can't stop having senses somehow. And you can be moved very emotionally in terms of the preaching of a sermon. Uh, people, are, you know, you see people actually crying during the preaching of a sermon, people laughing during the... It's, it's not a non-emotional or anti-emotional experience, but it is not primarily addressed to the emotions or the senses, it's addressed to a person. What is the sign of a Christian church? Or what is the sign of Christians? Answer? Love. Yeah, it's got to be love. John 13, 35. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That is, the, the sign of genuine Christianity is not the cross, nor the dove, nor the, what's the other, fish. That's not the sign of genuine Christianity. The sign of genuine Christianity is the relationship that people now have with each other. That is because revealed religion is effective religion. Affective religion, if you like, as well. But the affect, the effect of genuine Christianity is not that we are happy, clappy people, but that we love one another in a way that is supernatural. By this, uh, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Who is in heaven. The Americans have a wonderful phrase. Uh, he's got religion. That is, he used to be a drunk in the gutter, he used to be a womanizer, he used to be out gambling all the time, but he's not like that anymore because he's got religion. Very useful phrase. I, it's never come into Australia because no one's ever got religion here. But it was a very clear way of being able to say the person's been saved. The person's been not saved in the sense of being transformed, being changed, being just completely different. Now. When people love one another, they keep the commandments. When they keep the commandments, they don't steal from each other, they don't covet each other, they don't commit adultery with each other, they don't murder each other, they don't hate each other, they, they actually serve each other, they put themselves out for each other. When you've got a community of people doing that, you say, well, this is not normal. This is not natural. Now, we Christians are very good at putting ourselves down. We need to say, actually, folks, we're not perfect, that's quite true. And we're not saved because we're good. That's quite and true. But we are better than the others. Now, that doesn't sound right. You're not allowed to say that. It's proud, isn't it? It's not. We're better than the others because the Spirit of God has touched us and changed us and transformed us. And it's a reality. We've just been through mid-year conference season here on the universities in Sydney and uh, in Australia. Uh, hands up those of you who have ever been to a mid-year conference. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Mid-year conference at New South Wales University used to always follow the week of um, the National University Sports Conference, Convention Conference, whatever it was. Did anyone ever go to one of those? No, that says something about us, doesn't it? <laughs> However, quite a few people did. So we used to have people come from mid-year conference almost zonked out of their brains because they'd spent the previous week off somewhere else in Australia at this National Sports University Sports Conference. 
and they all always came and talked to me about the sheer contrast between one week and the next. For one week, even though they were great athletes, they spent their time boozing seriously. Uh, they spent their time smoking. They spent their, the, these people looking after their bodies. And of course, the sexuality of the place was, was famous. I mean, lots of people took up sport just to be able to hit on pretty young girls in, in tracksuits. And so the whole week was spent in a kind of bacchanalian feast for which you just recovered during the day in order to play your game before you went back into the social. And then they come to mid-year conference, no one swore, no one was uh, drinking, uh, there was romance in the air, but there wasn't uh, people <laughs> trying to get each other into bed all the time. It was, it was chaste sexuality, not decadent sexuality. It was people weren't backstabbing and fighting each other. It was just a completely different culture. Now, in one sense, not at all. Same country, same age group, same educational status, same group of people, but a completely different world. Why? Well, God was at work in one group in bringing about transformation. And I mean, you could say it was also socially organised by a group of wowseristic fanatics. That was me. Uh, but it wasn't just that the organisation was that. It was more than the organisation. It's what the people were like. And whereas at the sports conference there was hardly ever a serious conversation about anything other than some kind of technique on how to run faster, when you came to mid-year conference, even though it was holiday time, people were seriously reading, thinking and talking with each other uh, like as if they were tertiary educated. Uh, novel idea for a university student. Now, the difference is not something as a matter of pride. The difference is a matter of the work of God in the lives of people. But we mustn't give the impression that Christianity has no effect. And we must start to see that the reality of the effect is the sign of the Christian, not the symbol on the sweatshirt. That's not the sign at all. Anybody can put on a sweatshirt. What's it say? I can't remember what it says, this one. I don't even know either. <laughs> yeah, that's how important. He doesn't even know what. DML. DML, there you go. Dematerialized, uh, yeah, I don't know what it is. And then there's the University of... Uh, it probably It probably doesn't even exist, you see. Anybody can put on a sweatshirt, a hoodie, which says anything on the front and it doesn't necessarily mean anything more than their auntie was a tourist. Right? That's, it's, it's an irrelevance. So putting a cross on is no sign of being a Christian. I was in Port Douglas last week for my sins. Uh, uh, it's not a very nice place, I don't think. However, it is close to the Daintree Forest, and they are really interesting for old geographers like my wife and I. And uh, I'd just been up at the Cooktown um, Midyear Conference, Cooktown University. Uh, John, uh, what's his name? Uh, da uh, Cook. James Cook University, that's him. Not at Cooktown, up at Cairns, Townsville. Actually, up at the Atherton Table then, which is a really interesting place to be if you're a geographer and totally boring otherwise. Um, and uh, up at, why, why did I mention Port Douglas there? Um, the, rainforest. Uh, the rainforest was that really interesting. It's fascinating. No, that's not why I mentioned Port Douglas. <laughs> 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 uh, up at the University of James Cook, and I can't remember where I was going on that one. It's a really. 
Sorry? Oh, I was at Midget's conference with them, wasn't I? Yes. <laughs> it was such a good holiday, I've now <laughs> totally lost the track of what I was saying about whatever it was going to be. Symbols and raising hands, closing symbols, what? Yes, the effectiveness of Christianity was where I was at, which was real and true, and you certainly saw the alternative in Port Douglas. Let me tell you, it's a dreadful, silly place. Uh, just, has anyone owned shares in Port Douglas? It's all just one resort after another, after another. It's dreadful. However, that's what I wasn't going to say, so I'll move back uh, to symbols. Um, last, a month ago, I've stopped because I can't remember it. I've started again on something you read. A month ago, the Anglican Church in North America consecrated two women as bishops, one of whom uh, is heterosexual, the other is lesbian. Now, in this consecration, they had seven processions. That's what they wrote it up as. It was a wonderful consecration. All these people were here, thousands from here, there, everywhere. All these famous people were there. Got good wishes from all these politicians. We had bells and smells and everything else in seven processions. I noticed the seven processions because I was fascinating because they've had seven processions, they've gone nowhere. Because the essence of a procession is to go somewhere, but they actually went nowhere in the seven processions they had. But it's also because in the time of Henry VIII, under Cranmer, processions were made illegal in the Anglican Church. What difference, you know? A good procession is a good procession. I've watched the Anzac Day procession like anybody else loyal to Australia. What's so big about a procession? Well, because processions are classic forms of, of, of false religion, of natural religion. People love processions. So they're processing around the building, going now. It's not as if they're processing from one building to another building or, you know, we've got to go down here, so let's all do it together in an orderly fashion and process. No, no, it had nothing to do with that. We just like going around in procession, right? And and, and it, it's natural religion. And it's the exact kind of thing, well, it was precisely something that was made illegal in the Anglican Church. Uh, the principle that you've got is that the clergy and the choir should move the shortest possible, most direct route between the vestry and the place at which they're going to conduct the service. Uh, I mean, you've got to move, so, uh, you know, but that's what the law requires of you to move the shortest possible route straight direct route because you're not making a show of your procession. I'm in uh, constant warfare with the choir at St Andrew's Cathedral because they will not do that. They always want to take the long route so as to process and to make a grand entry into the cathedral because this is this heightens the religious experience. But heightening the religious experience is not the same as the effect of changed hearts and changed lives, which is what the Word of God and the Spirit of God does. It's, 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 it's the wrong thing, you see. I know Port Douglas. In Port Douglas, as I'm walking along the streets there, looking at, this is one of the most insignificant but yet stark things, illustrations. As I'm walking along the street there, who's been to Port Douglas? Yeah, I thought there were some decadent people here. As I'm wandering along the streets there, looking in the shops, because shopping is one of the main things you do at Port Douglas, apparently, there's this shop of swimming costumes, which is what you need in Port Douglas, 
which you don't because there's crocodiles and stingers and box jellyfish and all kinds of things that'll kill you if you go swimming there. But as I'm walking past it, there's this, this mannequin in a bikini. Not that I've noticed, you know, I, you know. Oh, of course I've noticed, I'm not that old. And so as I notice this mannequin in this bikini, what has she got on? A bikini. What else has she got on? Nothing, just a bikini. A very, very small bikini. What else? A cross. Big cross. Now that, what, what are they? <laughs> Is this a blasphemous send-up? I mean, I, 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 was, I was tempted to wander into the shop and talk to the owner about it, you know, because it was so... Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't believe in wearing crosses anyway, so for me to protest about someone wearing a cross because I don't believe in wearing crosses seemed a little strange at that stage, because I could hardly call it blasphemy if I didn't believe in it. But on the other hand, why would you dress a bikini mannequin with a cross, you see? Uh, it just again shows the stupidity of the religious sign because you can put a cross on a bikini-clad mannequin. Doesn't make her a Christian. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it's, it's of no consequence. It's a, it's, a, it's a stupidity, isn't it? And so people wearing crosses, that's not the sign of being a Christian. The thing that should worry the Muslim is not that, in Nigeria, is not that the Christians wear crosses, but that the Christian community is more loving and caring than the Muslim community. That's the thing that will mark them out as Christians. That they love one another in a way that Islamic people do not even understand, let alone ever do. That's outdo them in love is the sign of being Christian. And that's what we've got to work at. Whereas natural religion always moves to legalism and superficiality and exhibitionism. Now, some of you had the rare privilege of hearing me preach the other day. Rare privilege, I do it all day, every day. Um, yeah, but that Matthew 6 passage on, the, on praying is it falls into the same categories of thought, doesn't it? That, that we we, uh, uh, real prayer, sincere prayer, will not be seen prayer. It will be between you and God, rather than being exhibited. Now, this is a real problem for us in Christian ministry. How do I pray out loud in a way of sincerity? That, that's quite, it's quite a trick. Jesus is not saying never pray in the synagogues or on the street corners but never pray in order to be seen by men. But as you stand up to lead in prayer, well, you are seen by men. You now have to work out whether this is helpful to them or unhelpful to them. How am I assisting others in, in the way in which I lead in prayer? Or how am I damaging others in the way in which I lead in prayer? That is, as I fellowship with people, I'm always concerned for their welfare, not my own. And so whatever behaviour I undertake, it has to be edifying. Whatever you do in church, 1 Corinthians 14, is it 22 or something like that, it has to be done for edification. It has to be building up the other person. Now, that is why I'm dead opposed to liturgical dance. I find liturgical dance very, very uh, bad news. 
Why? What's the objection to liturgical dance? It's a group of usually women uh, uh, doing Christian ballet in church. And so representing gospel truths by their dance. Because ballet often tells a story in dance, and so it tells the Christian story in dance. I mean, it's done at more College often, I can see, uh, by the blank looks on people's faces. But it is done elsewhere. So when I was in, um, uh, I better say Oxford because Mickey's here. Uh, I think it was the other place. Uh, uh, I remember talking to this bloke uh, about uh, Greek and he told me that he, his Greek wasn't up to reading Cranfield's big commentary on Romans. And I said, that's appalling because he's got a degree in theology from one of those places and uh, I said you can't learn to preach that way he said oh he laughed he said they never taught us to preach and I said what do you do in pastoralia classes he said oh they had more lessons on liturgical dance than they did on preaching and I said what did you do during liturgical dance he said I sloped off down to the river and rode uh, <laughs> I mean that's yeah, that was a culture shock for me many years ago because I went to Moore College not to one of those kinds of colleges and so it never occurred to me that someone would have a lesson in liturgical dance which is good that I didn't get such a lesson isn't it so what would be the objection why don't we teach liturgical dance here in Moore College what is the objection to it sorry it's not word-based it's, word it's it's yeah what are the women wearing <laughs> <laughs> well done my sister that's exactly right, my sister. You, that is your problem. That is, either it's a group of old ladies who are so unattractive uh, that it is, uh, it is uh, aesthetically uh, unpleasant to watch, or it's a group of young ladies who, who it is so attractive that it is sexually immoral to watch. Either way, it doesn't work. Right? I mean, it's just... Men don't like to go to ballet for lots of reasons, not the least that uh, it really is not very helpful to our souls. Uh, you watch ballet crowds, they're nearly all female and homosexual. Uh, they're the only people not affected. The homosexuals, of course, like it because they, the men look like something you wouldn't want to see. But most men find the whole thing just is fairly difficult. I'm happy for the women to enjoy their ballet because they look past the kind of sexuality of the being into the romance of the story. But men can't go to church and watch women prance around to music and not think of sex unless the women are particularly unattractive. And if they are particularly unattractive, then it's not very good, is it? So either way, it's a lose-lose, you see. There's liturgical ballet, it's, it's, it's just really bad. That is, they're not thinking what is helpful to the other person. They're thinking, how can I express my religious experience? How can I exhibit the, the feelings of God that I have within me? How can I... Right? And so it's about me and my need for exhibitionism. Now, that point, a lot of what is being done in churches, especially, say, Pentecostal churches, it's about that. It's got to do with not me caring for you and not me sharing with you in the great truths of the Word of God, but me experiencing the presence of God, 
getting into the zone of God and exhibiting it to others. Well, that is not the spiritual work by which we're going to be transformed. You're transformed by the renewal of your mind as you are no longer conformed to this world, but you hear the word of God. We gather together as a church to hear the gospel word of God, to hear the word of God that in Deuteronomy uh, 4, you gather together to hear the word of God, uh, as you did at Mount Horeb, which of course is what uh, uh, Hebrews 12 is about, or Hebrews 10. Let's not forget to meet together, but to stir one another up to love and good works. How does me singing at the top of my voice uh, stir you up to love and good works? Well, it gives you an opportunity to be patient and kind and gentle, uh, but no, it doesn't. But if I am shouting or singing words that are meaningful, you see, the two passages about singing in the New Testament are in Ephesians 5 and in Colossians 3. And both of them are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The activity is a communal activity. Uh, that I am going to teach you, you are going to teach me, and one of the ways of teaching each other is to sing, uh, sing the words of God to each other, or songs about God, or that—that's what we're doing. We're teaching one another, and that's why you need to sing loud enough to be heard, um, and you need to sing together. It's a communal activity. But when I am off into my own reverie closing my eyes, raising my hands and singing what I want to sing. Well, that actually is not edifying to me. You, you are no longer concerned for me. You're not interested in me. You are interested in yourself experiencing God in the music. And that, that's what the hand raising is, is all about. It's, it's me getting in this. The mosh pit to a hymn is, is a nonsense. How, how can you have a mosh pit? I mean, I, I don't have a problem with a mosh pit. I'm never going to go in one of my age and break, my, break my, my hip or something. It'd be just dreadful. <laughs> Got to be careful with my bones when you get to my age. But if kids want to have fun in a mosh pit, I, that, that's, that's fun in a mosh pit. That's, that's okay. That's not a problem. But you're not going to teach one another the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in a mosh pit, are you? That's a, that's a nonsense. And likewise, when you're leading the singing, uh, uh, you know, I've seen them on the stage where they're leading the singing, but they've got their eyes closed. How can you engage with the congregation with your eyes closed? I mean, if you're a preacher and you spend the whole time looking up to the top corner, they tell you, stop that, you're not communicating to the crowd. It's so off-putting to have a preacher who won't look at you, who just is constantly looking to the top back corner. And you train them not to do such a thing, because it's, it's almost rude, it's antisocial. I mean, it's not, it's got to do with being embarrassed, and, and some people have got a lot to be embarrassed about. But it's, it doesn't communicate, does it? Well, the song leader with their eyes closed, caught in the reverie of the music themselves and in, even in the words that are associated with the music themselves, is no longer singing to you. And, and they are now, they're in their own world. Well, do that in the bathroom. You'll sound better too. But in the congregation, sing to me and to one another and serve me. It's a particular problem, of course, for girl song leaders. 
because the visuality, men are very visual girls, and, and so, uh, sorry, I'm not saying men are very visual girls, I'm saying men are very, very visual, <laughs> comma, girls. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and the way in which women tap time to music and the way in which men tap time to music is physiologically different. That is, men do it with a toe, women do it with their heel. That's because women can't help themselves but dance with their, with their, uh, their hips. And so they are always moving more than men move when they conduct. And so women conductors can create problems to say nothing of the fact of being up on a stage and with lights on, then you are highlighted in your physical appearance and your dress appearance and you've always got to wear something longer when you're on a stage which is up higher. And there's a whole host of problems about girls leading, leading singing which can all be overcome, but you need to be conscious of them. You need to be saying, I am here to serve the congregation, not to distract the congregation, but to help the congregation. It, it's like musicians generally. Most of our musicians are trained to be performers. Hardly anybody is trained to be an accompanist. That's a, that's a, a different art form and one that you'll hard press to find anybody in the community to teach you how to do it. Because that's not the concern of the modern musical training. Whereas Christian musicians are accompanists. We are accompanying the singing. The congregation's singing is the is the key, <laughs> the musical players are the assistants to it. But I'm afraid because they've been trained to be performers, they get on the stage and they perform and the congregational singing gets lost in the process. Now that's true with formal choirs, it's true with organists, it's true with, with um, uh, bands playing, it's true, it's, it's, it's not a problem of a particular type of music, it's a problem of music as she's played today <laughs> in our society and we really have to work as pastors in congregations to train musicians to become accompanists. Even though you don't know any music yourself, don't worry about it, it's the principle of you are there to make this congregation sing better. You are not there so that people will even be conscious that you have played. The really good accompanists, people don't even notice that they were there because they were thinking of the words which the music helped them enjoy and taught and learn and experience. But it's the words you convey. Music is highly emotional activity though. The essence of music, I mean it's organised noise. But if you organise noise the right way you touch emotions and what it does then is it connects the ideas of the head to the emotions of the person. That's why the hymn singing is so important. And it's very hard to uh, uh, criticise music or songs of any kind without people taking offence. That's because people get deeply attached emotionally, personally, to, their, to the music, to the songs. Uh, much more so than to a word or a message. And so it becomes a very important activity for people to own the words. Now this means it's really important that you've got the right words to own. So the words that people are singing is really critical, uh, critically important. So it's a good activity, it's a wonderful activity. I keep watching a watch which actually has stopped an hour ago. Um, <laughs> it's really important to, uh, uh, that we have the music, but we must do it in a way which edifies people, not do it in a way which doesn't. Now the, the raising of the hands, it's got nothing to do with edifying anybody else. <laughs> That's just not what the activity is about.
It's about exhibitionism. It's about self-experientialism. It's antisocial. Now, if we're in a culture where that is how everybody sang always, that the posture of singing was with your hands up, well then, possibly you'd say, well, all things to all men, that's what happens. Uh, I had a couple of Ugandan girls used to be in church with me, and they could not stand still when they sang. It was just physiologically impossible for them. They just, they just could not do it. I used to tease them. I used to say, let's see if you can get through more than one verse without moving. And you'd see them really, really train, and then after a while, they just, they just, that's their culture. And if I was in Uganda, I would learn to bop around with the culture because that's, it's not the church culture of Uganda, it's Ugandan. It's just how they, but that's not Anglo-Saxon. And holding your hand up, no one does it. And in fact, the non-Christians make fun of charismatics for doing it. They think we're mad. And so it's not, we're doing it in order to reach the Australian community. Now, built into it also is a symbol of being charismatic. And that is a very dangerous symbol. See, a divide between the charismatic and the non-charismatic is very important for the non-charismatic. It's not important for the charismatic, but it's critical for the non-charismatic. Because the charismatic has two mission fields, the evangelical only has one. Our mission field is to get non-Christians to become Christians. Their mission fields are to get non-Christians to become Christians and to get non-charismatics to become charismatics. They have two mission fields and you, evangelical brothers and sisters, are one of their mission fields. That's their intention, that is their aim, that is their stated purpose in life. That's what they are about. That's what... That is why the Sovereign Grace Church has changed its doctrinal basis to make no reference to the second blessing because they don't want to offend the charismatics that they're trying, the non-charismatics whom they're trying to get to become charismatics. That is, you know, who we're talking about. And so the divide for us is a very important divide to make clear. Getting rid of the division is a very important thing for them to do so that we can slide across into the charismatics easily. And so this symbol of raising hands is one of those things whereby we get rid of this divide. And when people like me stick their hands further and deeper and deeper into our pockets, uh, that is what stops the divide. That's what keeps the divide happening. Now, what is a stole? A scarf, yes, like the black scarf, only what's different about it? Different colours for different seasons, yes. What else is different about it? It's embroidered, yes. It doesn't keep you warm. No, it doesn't look like it would, does it? Yeah, but a scarf doesn't either. This. It's for clergy to wear. Only clergy wear it. It, uh, it's highly embroidered, it changes, they change different colours for different seasons and the clergy don't wear it all the time. When do the clergy wear it? When they're doing the heebie-jeebie stuff. When they're doing the heebie-jeebie stuff. <laughs> so, eloquently put, thank you. Um, yes, it, it's, it's only worn at baptisms and the Lord's Supper. In other words, during the sacraments. The only time it's worn. Now, unlike the chasuble, it has no doctrinal significance. The chasuble is... Yeah, the chasuble is the big poncho. 
that the sacrificing priest will wear. So when you come into a Lord's Supper in a high church, the poncho will be sitting on the table here and the clergyman will be wearing a white robe. And then halfway through the service, when the heebie-jeebie bits are going to happen, <laughs> he will go and pull the poncho over his head and now he is a sacrificial priest. And he will move to this side of the table because he is standing between you and God or alternatively so as to get into the ecumenical spirit he'll stand on this side of the table whereas a good protestant will always sit stand at the end of the table on the north side this is where protestants stand that's where catholics stand that's where ecumenicalists stand <laughs> but you see notice the nature of their compromise their compromise was not to go around to the south end of the table. That was not the compromise. The compromise was still to stand in a priestly position in the altar, but no longer as the mediatorial priest. Yeah? Yeah, I'm John? just wondering what the ecumenicals are doing. I get the other two, but he's standing in a priestly position. Yeah, he's still standing as a priestly position here, but he hasn't got his back to the congregation because he's invited the congregation to join him in being priests. So it's consubstantiation, uh, it's con, I can't think of the word they use, yes, con-consecration or something. Oh, is there, is there the yes, because this is a table and the person who presides at a meal sits at the end of the table. So the head of the table sits at the end of the table. That's why he sits on, that's why you stand that side. Why not the Samson? Uh, there's no good reason. Just a convention. But Cranmer had to say, stand somewhere. And so he said, stand on the north side. Yeah. So, you see, symbolism is there, but what are you symbolising is really always the important thing. Now, the stole is something that has no particular theological significance, but evangelicals wouldn't wear it. It was just an issue. We wouldn't wear it all. Uh, in Synod, famously, there was this address by... Uh, Mr. Siddons, who said that, you know, that the stole has no theological significance and we should allow it in the Diocese of Sydney, to which T.C. Hammond, who was a very rough Irishman, said, well, ah, Bill, you're right, it's no, no theological significance. That's why when you cough, you cough into it, and when you wipe your nose runs, you wipe your nose on it, don't you? <laughs> and of course it has theological. Look, it's brocaded. It's different colours for different seasons. It's only used by the priests. It's only used during the sacraments. Of course it has symbolic significance. It raises the nature of natural religion. We're no longer in a normal meeting of normal people. We're in a meeting with somebody who is so special that he wears weird clothes. Right? That who is the person between you and God, especially at certain times and high seasons that he is doing. I mean, this is, this is natural religion. But in another sense, is there something wrong with wearing a stole? No, you've got a coloured scarf. You've got a coloured scarf on at the moment, haven't you? don't know which season it is, it's all mixed up, but you know, do you have to wear a black scarf? Do you have to be dull and boring? Well, there's no sin in wearing a scarf, but the symbol of the stole was the symbol of church is the place where you meet God through the sacrificial ministries of priests. No evangelical would wear a stole. There were stole churches and non-stole churches. And the divide was as clear as a bell. Now, sometimes evangelicals, in order to bring the gospel to a stole church, would go and wear a stole. But that was always, a, you know, an issue as to whether you could do, whether your freedom of conscience could do it. So sometimes missionaries 
from an evangelical source, go to South America and they want to help the local church and everybody raises their hands, they put their hands up. You haven't sinned by putting your hands up. But if you're in Sydney and you put your hands up, you're saying you're a charismatic or you're saying that charismatics are all right, one or the other. Either way, you're sending the symbol that you don't want to send. It's, it's a very dangerous, silly symbol to send. Uh, because it, you know, and why? Why put your hand up when you sing? I mean, one of the big reasons, of course, is we did away with hymn books and got overhead projectors and now PowerPoints. Because when you have hymn books, it's really daft to raise your hand while singing. You know, we're going to sing number 327. Okay, here we go. It just doesn't work, does it? And actually, the reason why hand raising came in was because the PowerPoints came in at the time of the charismatic movement. They didn't do it until the PowerPoints came in. Men don't know what to do with their hands. They stick them in their pockets. Sticking hands in the pockets is a matter of uh, being disrespectful. Uh, never do it in the presence of the Queen. Why would you do it in the presence of the Lord Jesus? And so you've got to do something with your hands. So what do you do with your hands, you see? And so here is something to do with your hands when singing. The other place Australians sing is in pubs and they've got something to do with their hands, you see? They've got a glass to hang on to or something. But so it, it actually had a physical reason for it in the first place it now has a religious you know with God sitting on the praises of his people and so on but it's it's natural religion it sends the wrong symbol about who we are it removes the division between charismatics and non-charismatics it's anti-social and it's no longer concerned about the congregation members around about me it's exhibitionist rather than spiritual and it puts the emphasis on the music rather than upon the uh, and the activity of singing rather than upon the words which the music is there to help you with so it, it turns everything on its head though it's not immoral or sinful <laughs> you know and you could put it in the adiaphora kind of box if you had an adiaphora box it doesn't matter exactly the same way as the stole as genuflecting as crossing yourself another T.C. Hammond story, he was caught a bus here one day going into town and this woman started abusing him uphill and down. In those days he wore his clerical collar as all clergymen did. And so he said to her, Oxobloxus Glorioxus. And she said, oh father, she said, I thought you were that terrible Mr. T.C. Hammond. That's why I was going on like that. <laughs> uh, none of them know their Latin. Uh, <laughs> but... Yeah, Hammond was a very naughty man, you know. And one of his communion sermons, there used to be a gardener, and they were in the, the chapel. Do you ever use the chapel up there? Occasionally. The gardener used to always sleep during chapel time, just the other side of the, the garden out the back of the table. And uh, T.C. Hammond said, Now you take it, there's the bread, there's the wine. And here we are all sitting. Now, if that is the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, why old Mr. Fibs outside, he's closer to God than any of us as he sleeps and snoozes on from having drunk too much the night before. <laughs> you see, he was a very good at that Irish humour, poking fun at the stupidities that lie in natural religion because it is so fundamentally different to revealed religion. Revealed religion is about the changed person by the Spirit of God through the Word of God which leads to real relationships, real prayer, real singing to the benefit of each other and the praise of God. It's very different to exhibitionist, external, legalistic kind of singing. There we go. 
Well, you've got to sing loud enough for the people around about you to hear, and you've got to sing words that actually make sense and meaningful, and you've got to sing them meaningfully. Now, a lot of the choruses today, well, some of the choruses today don't do that. Some of the hymns that were collected up by the 19th century Anglo-Catholics don't do that. I mean, it, almost anything by John Henry Newman, you've got to hold your breath and work out whether you want to sing it or not. And uh, A lot of the books, a lot of the hymns in hymn books written by John Henry Newman. I mean, he became a cardinal. You know, I mean, he started off from an evangelical family and wound up as a Roman Catholic cardinal. He wrote poems on the way through, of which we sing. Some of them you can, most of them you can't. But they're in our hymn books and people put them on to sing because it sounds good. You know? A lot of the hymns about communion are wrong. They're unedifying. And so we really have to work out what, what are the songs that actually teach the truth that we will sing to one another. Now, the eye contact, you're right, we're sitting in rows like this, which is an uncomfortable, unpleasant way of having fellowship with each other. I think... <laughs> Yes, uh, you sing and make melody in your heart to the God. But the melody in your voice and your words is to your fellow brothers and sisters or your teaching. Some of the hymns you sing are uh, to God, but many of them are to each other. You know, to God be the glory. Who am I singing that to? Yeah, it's to each other, aren't I? You know, and praise the Lord. I'm singing that to you. I'm telling you to praise the Lord. Alleluia is Hebrew, uh, means praise you the Lord. Uh, so uh, you can say, uh, O Lord my God, how, um, when I in awesome wonder consider all, I'm speaking to God in that one, and there's nothing wrong with speaking to God. I'm speaking to God though loudly enough to you to hear what I'm thinking about God. <laughs> Yeah, so that was part of my question. So there's some hmm. hymns that are addressed There are hymns God. that are addressed to God. Even in them, the primacy is still in... The others. That's right. Because I don't need to do it out loud to God. It's like corporate prayer, common prayer. What I'm doing in praying is I am not praying. I am leading you in our prayer. It's common prayer. So that's why it's so dreadful when people get up in church and say, I'm going to pray about this now and... I, Lord, and uh, I, I feel, Lord, that we should be doing, and they're sometimes preaching sermons, but they're often having their own private quiet time, but they're doing it publicly. Right? When we pray, we say, Heavenly Father, we, it's, it's a cor I'm leading you, I'm corporately taking you to God. Josh? 